0: Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 12. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbringing, upbuilding, and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching If even lifeless instruments, like as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of this language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Paul. I'm part of the team, and I, too, welcome you this morning. And just... um, Let's uh, take a moment to pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word to us. We thank you um, that you have spoken to us, that you have something for us to hear this morning. And I pray that uh, by your grace, you would grant us ears to hear, uh, grant us to have open minds and soft hearts. And we pray that, that we would receive your word and that you would give us strength to our Wills and that you would grant us wisdom to apply this word to our lives, that we'd be strengthened and encouraged and built up in you, uh, that the church would be edified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the past couple of weeks, uh, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, fondly regarded by many as the love chapter. But ironically, the words uh, that are recorded in chapter 13 are not the sentimental musings of a first century romantic. Rather, they're words of rebuke to a church uh, that had lost sight of love and and had lost sight of loving one another. They were living self-centered lives and they were uh, self-serving in their ways. And one of the ways that we'll see today that this was manifesting was in uh, unhealthy and abusive use of spiritual gifts. As we come to chapter 14, Paul begins to address specific issues pertaining to the use of the gift of tongues and prophecy when the church gathered to worship. Now, for some of us here today, the topic of spiritual gifts, uh, and more specifically, tongues and prophecy, may be unfamiliar. So a little later in the sermon, I'm going to spend a little bit of time speaking specifically to the gift of tongues. But for clarity, as I reference this throughout the sermon, I just want to give a couple of brief definitions for us. With respect to prophecy, in his sermon on October 23rd, Pastor Jake provided this definition. He said, it's telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind for the upbuilding, encouragement. And consolation of the church. And if you missed that sermon, and you have questions about prophecy, you'd like to understand more of what the New Testament is—it means by this word—I would encourage you to go back and have a listen to that sermon. Now, with the gift of tongues, what we see in Scripture uh, is this: that tongues are the spirit-empowered ability to speak a language. It can be either earthly or heavenly, but it's a language that's not previously known or learned by the speaker. Now, as mentioned, in Corinth there were issues with how people were using these gifts, and specifically tongues and prophecy. The gifts were being used for selfish reasons, and the result was division and um, disorder in their gatherings. But what we need to see, what's important for us today, is that the issues were simply symptoms of a more fundamental problem. See, it was a problem of priorities. Disordered values that were reflecting in the behaviors as they gathered. See, their love was set in the wrong direction, and their desires were amplified in ungodly ways. And, And though we may not see the same kind of symptoms here, right? We don't have issues with outbursts of tongues, disorder, or disruptions as we gather. We're a fairly orderly folk, aren't we? we are equally susceptible to the same fundamental issues that plagued the Corinthian church. Priorities that are out of step with the priorities of the kingdom of God. And here's why it matters. See, when priorities are out of order and affections are misdirected to uh, in the people of God, the church as a whole suffers. The mission of God wanes and the glory of God is obscured. And with this in mind, we're going to look at three things today. The first thing is the motivation, which is love. The second thing, the means, the spiritual gifts. And the third, the goal, building up the church. So let's look at verse 1. It says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And this is where we find our first point, the motivation, which is Love. In her book, in his image, Jen Wilkin points out that in our culture, there's all kinds of baggage associated with the idea of love. Right. First, there's linguistic baggage. In the English language, we have one word that is used to describe affection or devotion in varying degrees and a variety of uh, contexts. And so when one speaks of love, the word is often used generally and indiscriminately. For example, with one breath, I could say, I love my wife. And with the very next, I can say, I love fried chicken. The same word, but hopefully, hopefully, a very different sense in which the word is being used, right? Now, second, in addition to linguistic baggage, there is also cultural baggage, right? The cultural baggage relates to what society says about the nature of love. That is how our culture understands it. Now, culture says love is transactional, and it's primarily defined by feelings, and it's measured by the benefits one gets from it. As Wilkin notes, the common notion of love is that it is a feeling to be experienced, and I would add, for one's own enjoyment. But as we come to God's word, we discover that the way that the world defines love and what God has to say about it are worlds apart. See, as we've discovered over the past couple weeks, the biblical nature of love, the kind of love that the Apostle Paul is speaking to about in our text, is altogether different from the idea of love that's prominent in our culture. See, as Paul exhorts the Corinthians to pursue love, he's not calling people to run after feelings. He's not exhorting them to chase after a relationship that will first serve them, that will serve their interests, or that will make them personally happy. No, as Heath reminded us two weeks ago, he's exhorting us to chase after a love that is set on the good of others, a love that will lay down one's preferences, one's rights, even one's very life, for the sake of the other. And this this kind of love is only found in one place. It's found in God. It's love that is rooted in His nature. That's who He is. He He is love. And this love has also been made known to us by what he's done. Look at 1 John 4, 9-11. through 11. It says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God loved us so, we ought to love one another. Now, there's two things for us in this. First, we read, in this love, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. See, true love isn't transactional. In other words, it's not only given when there's good reason to give it. In fact, biblical love, you could say, is is kind of unreasonable, Right? It's giving, to, giving it to those who have no business receiving it. Right? And this is what God has done. Right? Before we had a thought about God, before we had any desire for Him, before our hearts were moved in any way toward Him, He loved us. He set His affection on us. He looked upon us with favor. And it was not because we were or are in, in some way or any way deserving of it. Rather, it was a choice that was independent of our worth or worthiness of love. And even more, as much as as He has not loved us because we deserve it, He has also not loved us because He has an eye toward any kind of gain from it. For God has nothing to be gained by loving us, because He has no lack of love in Himself. He's not lonely, sitting up there just wishing for somebody to give Him some attention. It's not insecure. He has no lack of glory. There's no insufficiency in him. Nothing that that would make our response somehow fill him up. See, he chose to love us simply because he is loving through and through. It's his nature to do so. And he would show this love to us. It would manifest in the most profound, perfect And sufficient way in the giving of his son right it says that his love is manifest in sending his son to be a propitiation for our sins which means that Jesus took the punishment of our sin upon himself this is how God has loved us he gave Jesus his only son he gave him for a people that were indifferent a people that had no regard for his ways a people alienated from him born as enemies estranged and yet he loved us and he gave his son not just gave his son but he gave his son to be punished because of our sin he gave his son to bear the wrath that we deserved so that we could benefit so that we could be free from sin so that we could be reconciled to god so that we could enjoy Him and enjoy life in Him and enjoy life forever. Are you hearing this, Christ City? We hear this week after week. And I hope we never get tired of hearing this. If we'd ever tire of hearing this, let's lock the doors. Do you hear this, Christ City? Can I have an amen? This is what what God has done in love for us. He's destroyed the power of sin in our lives through the cross of Christ. He's rendered powerless the thing that has corrupted our love and made us unloving. And now, free from sin, we have the capacity to love to grow in love for God and one another. Which leads us to the second part. For if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And this is what the Apostle Paul is aiming for, what he's calling for in us, that we would love one another, that our pursuit of love would be a love for one another. That's what he's calling the Corinthians to, and it's what he's calling us to. A pursuit of selfless, other-oriented love in response to the outrageous, extravagant, unmeasurable love that was given us in Jesus. And so that we would be motivated by that love to love one another. But the question bears, how do we actually do this? How do we like grow in this? How do we pursue love? Right, we can only do it as we abide in God's love as we press further into relationship with him. And I think there's practical things we do. I think we remember the gospel, not just on Sundays, but day by day, moment by moment. Again and again, we remember the gospel, right? Because it both inspires us and changes us to love. I think we repent of sin because sin at its heart is lovelessness. It's self-love. It's not loving the other. And so we repent before God and one another, turning from our loveless ways. I think we reorient, fixing our attention toward the good of others before we consider our own good. And then I think we redirect. We redirect the the grace that God has given us toward the other. Whether it's grace in the form of spiritual gifts or resources, time, money, whatever the Lord has given us, We live as conduits rather than containers. And we we forward, we expand that grace on others. And this brings us to the second point. The means by which this love flows. Spiritual gifts. Look again at verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now here it's worth noting that Paul has a unique strategy for dealing with the issues in Corinth. See, before he addresses the problems with tongues and prophecy, he first exhorts them to all the more earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And in the context, this seems incredibly counterintuitive. Because wouldn't it make sense, in light of the problems that they're experiencing with, with abusive use of the gifts, to first tell them to cool it, to stop it? Right? Like, pull back a little bit. You're out of control. Let's rein this in. Let's get some order, some decorum here. And then we can revisit the gifts when things are nice and safe and comfortable. Yet the Apostle Paul, he does the exact opposite. This is like crazy. With love clearly in view, what does he do? He first exhorts the Corinthians to all the more desire these gifts. Yeah, that desire, that's good. You need more of it. See, clearly, the issue is not the gift themselves. What we see here is that whether uh, they have issues associated with their character, the fruit of the Spirit, or issues associated with gifting, manifestations of the Spirit, as Sam Storm says, suppression of spiritual zeal is never the answer. See, God's grace is never the problem, and quenching the work of the Spirit is never the answer. We see this in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, where, where Paul says to the, the Thessalonian believers, don't quench the Spirit and do not despise prophecies. Commenting on this, Sam Storms brings it more uh, clearly into focus. He says... Sadly, there are people who, as soon as they feel the slightest tinge of warmth from the Spirit's supernatural work, quickly grab their theological, confessional, and denominational fire hose and douse his flame. See, unfortunately, as a result of poor teaching, unhelpful ways in which the gifts have been used, and even at times hurtful, abusive experiences... Many in the church today believe that it is better to suppress or restrict the gifts than to risk them running out of control. And, you know, I understand this. Because I grew up with experiences that left me confused. I, I came out of experiences where I was questioning my salvation and where I felt that I was somehow a second-rate believer somehow second rate in my face because there were these people that had something and I didn't have it and it left me wondering, where do I stand? And the fear that resulted inspired a desire to be in control and disregard some ways in which the spirit may have wanted to work in my life. And now as we've been working through this teaching, With sadness, I see how I have been quenching the Spirit, His work, in my life. And in doing so, I've made myself a determiner of what the Spirit can and cannot do. I've not just suppressed the gift, but I've called into question the goodness of the giver of the gift. I've exalted my way above God's, my wisdom above His, and have suppressed the Spirit. His power, his presence in my life. And I suspect that I'm not alone in this. And I think the question before us is whether as a result of ignorance, poor teaching, hurt, pride, fear, we've doused desire for spiritual gift, we've quenched the spirit in our lives. Will we continue to do this? Might God be inviting us today to deal with our hurt, our misconceptions, our fear? Might he be inviting us to open ourselves to the fullness of his grace that he would pour out by his Holy Spirit? Might be he inviting us into an abundance of good things as we just say, Lord, your will be done, as we humble ourselves, as we trust him, as we declare again our dependence on our need for his grace in a variety of ways, including spiritual gifts. See the love of Christ that that inspires our love for one another ought to inspire a deep desire for the gifts, because we need them as it means to love one another in this context. And and if you're struggling, if you're confused about these things, if you've been hurt, I'd encourage you to talk to someone. Talk to Pastor Jake, Daniel, Heath, myself, a community group leader. Let's not just leave this. But let's allow this word to change us. Allow God's grace to bring healing. God's grace to grow trust. God's grace to change us so that the Spirit would move powerfully, powerfully amongst us. Let's continue. Verse 1. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that ye may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mystery in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, for their build up-building and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So now, as Paul exhorts the uh, Corinthians to earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, he sets apart prophecy as a priority over tongues. Now, before we get to the reason for this, we need to take a moment to understand the gift of tongues itself. Right As mentioned, we've already delved into prophecy uh, and we have a definition that Jake gave us, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of the church. And again, if, if you want more information, go back to the sermon on October 23rd. There's lots of great stuff for understanding prophecy there. But we haven't spent time on the gift of tongues yet in this series, and so we're going to take a couple of minutes to try and better understand it. This will not be exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, but I just want to touch on a few points that will at least guide us as we understand the gift of tongues. The definition that we had was spirit-empowered ability to speak a language, to be earthly or heavenly, not previously known or learned by the speaker. And the first mention of this gift is found in the the book of Acts in chapter 2. It's on the day of Pentecost. This occurred after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and it was the fulfillment of the promised coming of the Holy Spirit Who was sent by Jesus to indwell believers and bind them together as as God's people, one body, the church, in order to fulfill the mission of God by bringing the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I think there's two primary things that we need to look at, and then a, and a couple of subsequent things here. And the first thing, I, and I think perhaps the most important thing we need to see, is that the most significant part of this event is not the miracle of tongues. The passage is not primarily about tongues. See, the most significant thing we're to see here is that God came by his Holy Spirit to indwell believers in Jesus. Right? The almighty, omnipresent, eternal, all-glorious, perfect, and holy God of the universe not only moved into the neighborhood through the incarnation of Christ, but now he has made a home in the hearts of his people by the Holy Spirit. And tongues are simply a manifestation of that reality as are all gifts. See, the greater grace to tongues is the indwelling third person of the Trinity and every person who trusts Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Right? The priority is not the gift, but it is always the giver of the gift. The second most important thing is to understand that tongues are a gift. And what I mean specifically is that the gift of tongues are a wonderful gift beautiful thing that God has graciously given the church for the building up of individuals and indirectly the building up of the church. Now, unfortunately, due to some of the issues that I mentioned early on, right, there, there can be a stigma with respect to, to tongues in many conservative churches. And sadly, the result has been to relegate the gift of tongues to the closet where, where we keep the weird things about our faith, the things that we don't understand, because, because if we don't acknowledge it, then it's not a problem. Or so we think. And without a hint of hyper- hyperbole, I, I say that this is absolutely tragic. Absolutely tragic. Because in doing so, we are missing God's grace for us through the gift. And perhaps more devastatingly, we are relegating those who have the gift to the margins of life in the body. In Christ city, this should not be. Nobody should be relegated to the margins based on the gifts that the Spirit gives to them. See, every gift that God gives is to be received with gratitude. Whether it's gratitude for what's been personally given or gratitude for what somebody else has. We ought to rejoice that, that God has given us people who by the Spirit, they they praise and they pray in private over this church in words, undiscernible to us, but but discernible to God, God who hears those words, understands those words, given by the Spirit of God. What a wonder that the Spirit would be ministering over us in these ways through those who have this gift. Let it not be lost on us how truly wonderful and beautiful this is. How blessed we are to have people who would speak in tongues in our midst. So in no way should we look down on this. In no way should it be relegated to the margins. But with gratitude we receive it. A few other things. First, tongues are not a sign of salvation in the individual believer or or related to second blessing theology. See, where tongues accompany the salvation of people in the book of Acts, it is a unique part of redemptive history. And it's always a sign of a people group being included into God's family, not the sign of an individual salvation. See, the stories of tongues speaking in Acts coincided with the outworking of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it was a demonstration of the expanding inclusion of people groups in God's kingdom. And so today, we would not expect tongues to accompany one's salvation, although they could. And we don't expect every believer to have the gift of tongues. The second thing, biblical tongues are languages, not meaningless babble. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says there are various kinds of tongues. And what we see in Scripture is that the various kinds include human languages, as seen in Acts chapter 2, and heavenly languages we see in our text today, where Paul says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. See, this we understand to be a heavenly language, unlike any human dialect, and is comprehended by God, perhaps the angels, And so what we understand is that each expression of tongues is understood to be a meaningful language. That it has not been learned by the tongue speaker. Third thing, tongues are in control of the speaker. And we see this clearly in chapter 14, verse 27, where Paul says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn. See, this implies that those who have the gift of tongues have control of it. Right? Tongues are not some ecstatic experience whereby the speaker has lost all control, but it's a controlled activity that is empowered by the Spirit. And then number four, tongues. Uh, the heavenly gift is for personal edification. Verse 14:4 four says, The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, this is not a negative comment on tongues by Paul. He's not anti-tongues or uh, anti-personal edification. For in the very next uh, verse, he would say, I wish that you would all speak in tongues. See, personal edification is not at odds with our faith. In fact, we commonly and strongly encourage personal edification in people's lives. We do this when we encourage personal scripture reading, praying, fasting, personal spiritual disciplines. Things done in private for building oneself up. Because we understand that as individuals are built up, as they grow in maturity, they flourish, and the church invariably benefits as well. Now, again, this is not exhaustive. And if you have questions about this, we would love to put resources in your hands um, and, and help you to explore further what, what gifts are. But for today's purposes, um, we, we can't really dive deeper into this. And so as we continue, looking at verse 4, it says this. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. And this here brings us to our third point, the goal, which is building up the church. See, Paul says prophecy is greater than tongues because it is more useful in building up the church, unless there is interpretation, right? In that case, when, when tongues have interpretation, it is equally as useful as prophecy. And the point that Paul is driving home is that, that point of intelligibility, Like for the church to be built up, there needs to be understanding of what is said. And Paul illustrates this as he continues. He says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation of knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give a distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves... So using several metaphors, Paul demonstrates that one of the primary ways in which the church is built up is through hearing and understanding words, through intelligible speech. And this is why we hold a high view of preaching. This is why we read Scripture out loud on Sundays, why we gather Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings, in community groups and pray out loud. Because hearing the truth, hearing exhortations to abide in the truth, admonishments to return to the truth, build up the church, causing it to grow in depth and breadth. And the same applies to the, the gifts of the Spirit, to speaking gifts. It's as we understand what is said that we are edified. And this is how the church is built up. In his, his commentary, Paul Gardner uh, encourage us in this way. He says, Paul beseeches them to seek or strive after these inscriptions in order that they may abound, that is, let their cup overflow for the building up of the church. Right? that That's the goal. That's what we're aiming for, for building up the church, that the church would be built up, that it would be all that God has intended it to be, that it could do all that God has called it to do to be a light to the world, to bring good news of Jesus to individuals, to families, to neighborhoods, to cities, to countries, to the ends of the earth. This is why we plant churches. Because the church is the plan A for bringing the gospel to our neighborhoods and to this city. This is why we send the missionaries to plant churches so people would know Jesus. So that communities would be transformed by the good news of him. And this is why we need to be built up. This is why, in love, we need to pursue spiritual gifts so that the church could be built up. A couple things to note here. Notice the language that Paul has employed throughout the text. He said, pursue love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. All of these words speak to our engagement in what God is doing. It's participatory language that exhorts us to fully engage in what God is calling us to. Christ, this is a call for everyone to be involved. See, some wrongly think that that the church is built up solely by the work of pastors and professionals. But this exhortation is for everyone, every individual, to be involved, to strive to excel in building up the church. He's calling all of us off the sidelines and to give of ourselves to this work. And it's a call that requires effort. See, some falsely believe that grace necessitates passivity. In other words, grace means God works and we wait. But as Dallas Willard notes, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So we understand the call to give ourselves with great effort to the work of building up the church. Church. It's not a means of earning God's favor, but it's an expression of gratitude for it. And this, this is calling us to dig in, to earnestly strive after gifts, And then to use those gifts here as we gather in our community groups. That the church would be built up and Christ's name would be proclaimed. I think this brings us to just one question. Christ would be, what are we building? What are you building? What are you pouring your life into? What are you pursuing? Paul has set before us something that is lasting, good, a true treasure. But what are we building? Career, a house to live in for a few decades, wealth, status, fame. What are we building? Paul has has called us to check our priorities and reorient them and to give ourselves to what truly matters and what truly lasts. Let's pray. God of all grace, we come before you acknowledging that that we need your grace. We need your grace for the way that priorities get out of whack in our lives. We need your grace for the way that we lack and, and need you to give us strength and power and gifts. We need your grace to um, live out fully the call that you've placed on our lives. And so, Lord, we we come before you and we ask that you would grant us that grace, that you would help us to see clearly where we need a shift in priorities, that you would help us to see clearly um, what you've called us to do, that you would help us to grow in knowing how you've gifted us and that you would help us to, to press in and to use our gifts with great joy and abandonment. Desiring more and more of what you would have for us. And as as you do this, Lord, we ask that you would build this church up. That you would grow it deep and wide. That it would would extend beyond these walls. That we would plant many more churches. And that Jesus would be proclaimed more and more. Neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood. All for your glory, we pray. Amen.
0: of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christitychurch.ca.